0: The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. Glad that you are here today and ready to study the Bible with us. If you are a first time viewer let me explain quickly how we do things. Uh, We hope we help everybody know their Bible a little bit better by answering viewers' questions. So if there's something you've always wondered about the Bible, uh, something that you just don't understand or have heard and wonder about, uh, we'd be happy to try to find you an answer to that, or maybe something in your life that you wonder what the Bible principle on handling such a thing would be. uh, We'll try to find you an answer. There's a phone number and a website on the bottom of the screen. Use those anytime day or night, and leave us a message, get in touch with us, uh, let us know what you'd like us to talk about on Know Your Bible, and you'll direct this program. So that's how we operate, we'll try to get as many questions in as we can, and Toby Levering helps me with that. Good morning, Toby. Yes, sir. Good morning. I'm Steve Tandy, and uh, we've got some good ones coming, like we always do, but our viewers always get the first question, so here's your question for the day. A famous story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 had some leftovers that day. How many baskets of leftovers were there? And we'll give you the answer to that at the end of the program. So see if you know a little bit of Bible trivia. And I think Toby drew the first question today, so you get to start us off.
1: Sure. Along the lines of Bible trivia, we kind of think about when you're reading the New Testament, is one of the things you'll see is a little bit of difference, and that's what this question's about. Why are the genealogies of Matthew and Luke different? When you read through, you'll see that uh the, the uh, uh, genealogy of Jesus is given in both cases, but the names are different. You think, well... For one person, shouldn't the genealogy be the same? Uh, And they go, they, they, the one in Matthew, uh, goes just traces Jesus' lineage back to Abraham, whereas in Luke it goes all the way back to Adam. And so uh, there are some differences. You'll see, a a astute reader of the Bible will notice the differences. And some people have pointed to these genealogical differences as a uh, proof that the Bible has errors in it. Of course, that's not the case. Uh, we simply need to understand the purpose and the reason uh, for the authors uh, doing the genealogies as they did. One thing that helps us to understand is understand the audience to whom the, uh, the author was writing. Uh, Matthew was writing to predominantly Jewish audience, uh, and that, of course, would have been important. They All Jewish people understood the importance of genealogies and tracing their covenant promise, their heritage, all the way back to uh, its origins. Uh, Luke uh, traces uh, a little bit to a wider audience, to a more Gentile audience, and so he's going to go broader. Uh, Another difference, uh, uh, another simpler way to think about it, is that Luke... Seems to look at the genealogy of Jesus from Mary's side and uh, the, the the bloodline, so to speak, uh, and then Matthew seems to approach uh, the genealogy approaches the genealogy from Joseph's side, which would have been the, the legal side of it, tracing uh, the legal uh, standing of the law and where he stood. So uh, that helps us understand a little bit that it was they're not they're not. Uh, uh, at odds with each other. They're simply two different genealogies working together. Matthew traces uh, the genealogy through Joseph, and uh, Luke goes through Mary. Hope that helps you.
0: All right, got an interesting one about uh, marriages. So a viewer says, how do you feel about being ordained just to perform marriages and funerals? Is that marriage still blessed by God? We get asked about ordination every once in a while, and this viewer's added a little extra twist. What does that make for a God-blessed marriage? Uh, First, let me explain to some viewers that don't know. You can get ordained without going to seminary or anything like that. Uh, Just Google ordination, and you can find all sorts of places that are selling ordination papers and uh, certifying people to perform marriages and all that Uh, Those sites usually tell you how much money you can make by performing marriages and uh, selling that service to somebody. Uh, I personally think that's probably a bad investment, but (laughs) if people want to do that, I guess it's okay. Uh, The laws are different in different states. Uh, Some states require a certification of some sort and some don't. Uh, In Kansas, basically anybody can perform a marriage, just sign your name on the certificate of uh, the marriage license, and in some states it's much more rigorous. Uh, one state I had a marriage scheduled in. Uh, they told me I had to show up at the courthouse a day early. I had to have my papers with me. I had to be sworn in as an officer of the court. So some states have a little different laws. But our viewer's main question was, uh, is the marriage valid if somebody with just a Internet ordination paper performs it. Uh, the Bible has nothing about a marriage ceremony. It tells us what marriage is. It is one man and one woman committing to a life together uh, before God. But it doesn't tell us anything else about who's got to perform that ceremony, what words they ought to say, uh, anything about it. So all we have as Christians is the rule that we ought to obey the law so whatever the law of our land is that's what we ought to follow but as we know down through history there's all kinds of laws and customs and practices Uh, I think the best way to explain it perhaps is that God knows when a couple is committing in their heart before him to live with each other in marriage Uh, that's what makes a marriage valid. Now, Christians ought to follow the law and have the proper paperwork and all that, uh, but I think that's why the Bible doesn't have any ceremony prescribed uh, because of so many different cultures and different ways. uh, As long as the couple understands what they're doing and is making that commitment, uh, God recognizes that marriage, I think. So uh, I think ordination papers just for marriages are... Probably a bad investment, but they're legal. So <laughs> we, we can do that here if we want, I guess.
1: Oh, yeah. And the next question has uh, another question for someone who's reading along to the scriptures. They ask, what does the word Salah mean in the Bible? Uh, Salah is a word that you will find. It's most often found in the book of Psalms. And uh, there, by one count, it's 70, found 71 times. It is also found in the book of Habakkuk three times. And n- the translators do not uh, translate it. They transliterate it. They simply take the Hebrew word and anglicize it. So it simply says Salah, which, of course, there's no Meaning for in the English language. What does that mean? Why is it there? Uh, Translators leave it in because it's in the original text. Uh, The question comes down to what was its meaning and what was its purpose. And uh, did a little bit of study. There's two possible meanings for the word salah. In the Hebrew, the word that it comes from uh, means in the first sense to value. To hang upon, to consider—it's kind of like when you, oh, maybe you're you're at a family event and uh, you're just you're not talking to anyone. You're just looking around and you're maybe seeing your children, how they've grown, your grandchildren. You're looking around and you're just appreciating the moment. Uh, you're you're valuing that. You're you're not really doing anything. You're just taking it all in and if you're you're appreciating the blessing that it is to value. Uh, another meaning of it is to praise, to pause, uh, and they, some trans, uh, uh, Commentators believe that uh, it, it could have been, especially with this in the Psalms, as the Psalms are being sung, that the salah is is a more of a, a mechanical word telling those singing, uh, we're going to rest here, we're going to stop, we're going to. Sometimes you'll hear hymns where there's a point of rest, and it's it's very powerful if it's done uh, properly. Um, so it, it could have gone either way, but to value, uh, also to uh, praise and, and and to pause, taking these two ideas uh, together, I think simply, you know, to whether it's a um, sort of a mechanical word in the in the instruction of of those leading the praise, uh, or if it, it's it's specifically for the reader to just simply stop and take it in and appreciate the blessing of God. Uh, Either of those certainly would be wonderful. Let's look at uh, Psalm chapter 3 verses 3 through 4. This is one example of Salah. Uh, But you O Lord are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill Salah. And if you just sort of pause and, and certainly if you're meditating on that scripture it fills you with uh, awe of God and and the reverence of his holy name, what he's done and who he is so Salah, we really don't know the precise meaning of, but there's a couple of interpretations of that word and what it might mean I hope that helps you
0: Okay, let me take just a moment and invite you to study the Bible with us. And I know you're doing that right now and paying attention to our answers. And maybe that teaches you a little bit of Bible. But I'm talking about studying the Bible on your own. And I know some of you do that and some of you haven't got that habit started yet. Uh, So we've come up with some tools that we think are great ways to uh, begin Bible study and continue it for a long time. Here's a course that we'll send you in the mail. Uh, Just a very basic overview of the Bible. And then we've got some other courses that are a little more detailed, a little more specific topics that you can go through for a long time with Know Your Bible Study tools. We've also got an online option. If you'd like to study online instead of waiting for the paper to come in the mail, just log on to oneway.worldbibleschool.org. They'll tell you how to get signed up, and you can start studying the Bible immediately. So all different options, a lot of good ways to study the Bible. Phone number and a website at the bottom of the screen. If you'd like those courses in the mail, just let us know. And so you want that free course, we'll get it started for you. And keep sending them for a long time, and absolutely free. No charge to you at all. We pay the postage and everything. So good way to study the Bible. All right, next question. Uh, Let me introduce this. We had a question a few weeks ago, I think, about uh, what does the word evangelical mean? You hear that a lot in the news, evangelical Christians, and we answered that and described it, I think. And this viewer called in and said, I'm a child of God, 1 John 3, 1. Not a Christian or an evangelical. Those are worldly terms. All right, I understand our viewer's point here. Uh, and the Bible certainly does call children a uh, Christian children of God first John three one talks about how blessed we are to be called children of God, so that's a perfectly good term to use for yourself if you're a christ follower uh, and I would agree that evangelical in a sense is a worldly term it 's not in the Bible anywhere uh, it doesn't draw a distinction between regular Christians and evangelical Christians, or first-class Christians and second-class Christians. Uh, All Christians are supposed to be, uh, that word is in the Bible, evangelical, and the word that they share, the gospel. Uh, All Christians are supposed to do that. Uh, but the way we use the term evangelical, the way we described it when we answered that question, I'll agree, that's not in the Bible, and I personally wouldn't call myself an evangelical Christian because of that. But I will take exception with our viewer's other point. He said uh, he's not a Christian, and that's a worldly term. Uh, that's a biblical term. It is used in the Bible a few places, and I think it's a perfectly good title for Christ followers. Uh, We find in uh, Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 uh, that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So we got the history there uh, of where this started. And quite possibly it started as kind of a derogatory term. Uh, The people of Christ, the party of Christ, those Christ followers. Uh, But Christians adopted it, uh, were proud of it, and used it. Uh, in fact, the Bible tells us we ought to be proud of it. Uh, 1 Peter 4 and verse 16 says this. Uh, Peter said, If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Okay, So Christian's not only a biblical name, it's a biblical name to be proud of. Uh, another place it's used is Acts 26, uh, where Paul was on trial before Agrippa. And he was telling him the gospel message. And Agrippa basically said, paraphrased, are you trying to make me a Christian? Uh, so it's used that way. And Christians in the Bible used it that way. So uh, I'll disagree with that point of my our viewers' uh, point that yeah, Christians an all right name for Christ followers.
1: All right. The next question has to do with uh, prophets. Uh, the viewer asked the question, are there any Modern day prophets. And since you use the qualifier modern day, I will simply answer the, uh, no, there are not any modern day prophets. Now there are many, and certainly you may see them if you're a religious programming viewer on Sunday morning. You'll see lots of people who proclaim to be prophets, uh, and they'll, you know, use that, uh, some in a generic form, some in very specifically, Uh, appointing themselves to be a prophet, saying, well, the Lord told me this, and the Lord gave me that. But when you look at prophecy and the role of prophets in Scripture, uh, they were appointed for a time and a purpose. There were prophets in the Old Testament. God sent them. God inspired them. God gave them His Word to be proclaimed to to His people, sometimes to His enemies. Uh, but, But God directly gave that man or woman uh, a word that they were to proclaim. The word "prophet" simply means one speaking for God. So, sometimes people use that in a broad sense, and they believe that really anyone speaking for God is a prophet. Well, uh, I, I, that's not the way I'm interpreting your question uh, on on this issue of modern day uh, prophecies. Prophecies, uh, prophets were. Temporarily uh, a role given to the early church before uh, they had a standard of scripture, the canon, uh, that was a uniform that everybody agreed on and and, and all the teachings were uniform and consistent. Uh, they needed people to speak from uh, God and instruct. And so that's what the prophets did. We know we can look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 talking about the church. It says the foundation of the the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay, so there was a, a role there for a time. Uh, chapter 4 verse 11 of Ephesians, uh, Paul writes, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, uh, shepherds and teachers and so on. T- talking about the different roles and gifts within uh, the New Testament church. So that they certainly did exist for a time. The prophets, you might say, filled the gap. You know, we have uh, the divinely inspired scriptures. Uh, we believe those are from God, inspired by God. Uh, we trust their authority, their accuracy. Uh, and so we have really no need for someone to speak a word from the Lord And you have to be very careful here, by the way, with those who claim to be prophets. Uh, I'll say, uh, I think this to be accurate most generally, modern-day prophets are mostly charlatans. Uh, we have to be very careful because uh, they can use and abuse their power, and they often do uh, for themselves to make a lot of money, to build their ministry, uh, to build their platform, and so forth. And when you look at uh, Old Testament or uh, even the early prophets in the early days of the church, uh, their role was not to build themselves up. Uh, their role was simply to speak the Word of God. And um, if you're watching someone who claims to be a prophet, uh, understand that role is no longer needed or necessary, uh, but always, always go to the Word of God as the ultimate authority and not a uh, prophet. Now, some people will say, well... What about the, Joel talking about my old men will dream dreams and have visions, and uh, they'll point to these scriptures. Uh, the, the predictions of the, the prophecies of Joel uh, were fulfilled on the day of Pentecost uh, when that uh, happened. So uh, modern-day prophets do not exist in the way that they did in the first century, uh, and the, 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 we don't have the need for it since we have the canon of the scripture. So hope that helps you.
0: All right, if you ever want to know, when Jesus comes back, is he going to destroy the earth? Well, I'm just going to let you read a verse, and then you can answer that question for yourself. So let's turn to Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. And Peter tells us this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Uh, I think you can answer the question now. When Jesus comes back, is the earth going to be destroyed? Absolutely yes. Now, God will prepare a place for us to live. Uh, He calls it the new heavens and the new earth. We have no idea what that's going to be like, uh, but that's what he says he's going to do. But this old world is going to be destroyed. And the important part of that verse is the question they ask at the end, since everything here is going away, how should you live? Uh, So if you're really into piling up material possessions and all that, uh, Peter's reminding you that all that's going up in smoke. So how should you prepare for the future? So absolutely, yes. I may invite you to visit the Church of Christ near you. We uh, like to mention a few churches each week that help us stay on the air. Uh, Today I'd like to mention a couple out in uh, western Kansas, Great Bend, and Scott City. Both have uh, great groups of Christians that uh, support this program and uh, think and study a lot like we do on this program. So if you live in one of those communities, uh, stop in and visit them. Or maybe you know somebody that attends the Great Bend Church of Christ or Scott City Church of Christ. Tell them that you were watching Know Your Bible and saw them talked about and uh, you appreciate them helping Keep us on the air. Whatever uh, viewing area you're in, there's probably a Church of Christ close to you. If you're looking for a church home or uh, want to thank them for providing the program, drop in and visit them sometime. Uh, they'll, they'll appreciate that. All right, Toby. Uh,
1: Before I jump to the question I have in front of me, uh, on the last question I forgot to point out Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And uh, I hate to do that, especially on that particular question. So Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So my apologies for skipping over that scripture. And now to the question uh, in front of me uh, from uh a viewer, what does it mean to be pure in heart, to see God? The Greek word here uh, for pure, katharos, simply means to clean, uh, to be purified, to be unstained. We use that word, a cathartic process, means a cleansing, a relieving um the 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 word heart cardia which is uh, very similar to the English words cardia. If you have do a little cardio you get the heart rate pumping or if you go to see your cardiologist uh, he or she works on the heart but it was more than just the physical organ uh, it had to do with the essence of, the, the, of a person's thoughts and desires and will and uh, in, in the Greek the heart was so much more than just the Physical organ it was the essence of a person, so to to put those Catharos and Cardea those two words together means to be a person a uh, of no hypocrisy, no guile, no no hidden motives. Um, and in the context of where Jesus is, mentions this we'll look at it in a second in the Sermon on the Mount he says, "Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God this is Matthew uh, chapter five verse eight uh, that's really what he gets to with the entire sermon he you know the, the, the Jews had a lot of rules about outward behavior but Jesus really cuts to the heart of the matter and he says it's a matter of the heart you've got to you know it's not just enough to say i, I haven't committed murder the question is do you have hatred in your heart? It's not just enough to say I haven't committed adultery. The question is, do you have lust in your heart? So Jesus really pulls the, the, his followers to consider not just their outward righteousness, but their inward righteousness. Now, how do we do that? Because it uh, seems like a very impossible standard, and uh, rightly so. It, it is. And no one can be completely pure in heart. The only way to do that is to be transformed, to be regenerated uh, in Christ. That is the only way to have a new heart. Uh, the psalmist David said, uh, create in me a clean heart, O God. Right? That, he was the only one who could clean from the inside out. So that's what it means to be pure in heart. And how we do that is only in Christ Jesus. Hope that helps you.
0: All right, i got a question about uh, when Satan came to earth. And the viewer wants to know, did God send Satan to earth before he created people? Uh, Well, interesting question. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't have an answer for it. Uh, We do not know exactly when Satan fell from heaven and was consigned to earth and eventually to to hell. But uh, here's the things we do know. Uh, First of all, we know angels were very, very likely uh, created before mankind was created. And the reason we believe that is pretty much one verse, Job chapter 38 uh, and verse 7. And in that passage, God is answering Job. Uh, Job is asking questions about why God does things and all that. And finally, the Lord speaks and says, basically, who are you to question me? And what he starts with, he says, uh, 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 Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Said, you, you don't even know how it all started. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Uh, when, where were you when its footings were set? Or uh, who I, I laid its cornerstone? And listen to this. While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Uh, Some translations say all the sons of God shouted for joy, but NIV here says all the angels shouted for joy. So at the creation, uh, angels were there while God was creating the earth. And uh, obviously after the earth was created was when man and woman were created. So we know that the angels were here first, or there first. Then we know people appeared. Get into Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Uh, Adam and Eve were created. And then the next thing we see is Satan appears with Eve and Adam, and we're not told where he came from, How we don't know how long Adam and Eve had been in the garden, uh, we don't know if that was a week of reading, it sounds like it was the first week, but it may have been years, may have been eons, we don't know. Uh, so that's all we know, angels first, man next, and then Satan appears with man in the garden, we are not told when Satan came to earth or how he came to earth particularly. Uh, so can't answer that question, but it's an interesting thing to think about, I guess. Uh, we can suppose all day and we'll never know the answer till we get there and ask, I guess. Let's take sure, make sure we get our trivia question answered today. And it is when Jesus fed the five thousand, how many baskets of leftovers were there? Oh, it was quite a potluck. They had 12 baskets left. And you can read that in all four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell that story. Uh, 12 baskets. I don't know if that was because the 12 apostles were doing the picking up and each one had a basket or what, but there were 12 of them. We're glad you've been with us today and hope you enjoyed our answers to your questions. And if we didn't get to yours today, we will as soon as we can. Uh, we'll invite you to be back next week with us as we answer some more questions. Till then, you have a great week.